Good evening to the Coach's Corner and for all of our viewers watching in the Known World Virtual Fighter Practice. How is everybody? We have Duke Branos with us, Viscount Tristan, Duke Sean, and Good evening, our everybody. special guest of honor that is popping up right now. I'm going to pass this off to Duke Sean to go ahead and just recap us on what happened in part one and make some lovely introductions. All right. All of our viewers watching in. Uh, good evening, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Um, <clears throat> last week we uh, covered the the needs need for speed, um, and uh, I wasn't I wasn't taking part in that one because uh, I didn't want to want to flood things too much. Um, I certainly have some things to say about speed myself, um, but uh, the guys uh, last week we had Tristan and Bronos and Ron Valder. Uh, they covered some some really good stuff um, about um, about kind of the why of of speed and how speed. Um, affects our sport and the the perception of speed and I think one of the the things that they covered exceptionally well was kind of breaking down the mythology um that that speed is the end-all be-all and that it's um that it that it is the most important factor and when it when it really isn't I mean speed is definitely a tool um, but it's not the most important thing and there are there are a number of things that you can do to um to develop uh speed uh, to deal with somebody who has more speed than you um, and to, uh, to, to improve your skill uh, without necessarily having uh, just straight up hand speed, uh, delivery speed. And uh, so the guys covered uh, things really well last week. And uh, there, there's, it's, it's a topic that is uh, ultimately, it, it is fairly important uh, to our sport. Um, as Muhammad Ali said, you know, who, he's the guy who's the fastest with the mostest is the bestest. Um, so it, it's definitely a factor, um, but uh, we wanted to kind of address uh, how it works in our sport and uh, how to how to how to cultivate it, if you will. Um, so we've got uh, Viscount Tristan is going to kind of recap uh, something that that was pretty important from last uh, last week's episode, uh, dealing with the five types of speed. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to him. Sure. Uh, yeah, this is something that really helped me out because I was, I had kind of a little natural speed when I started, but I didn't really understand there was more to it than that. And as people pursued it, uh, pursued fighting, learning, you know, they all wanted to be faster. They always wanted to have that the super fast shot and they would keep trying to get it. And they would usually go to the muscle tissue and Duke Sean, we talked about this a little bit before the show started about that really quick hand speed is to, you know, that they were so obsessed by just getting that stick flying as fast as possible, but there's more to it than that. And that is, um, and you can break this down to three categories or four, uh, but the, the five that we talked about last week were, it starts with observation speed, which is how quickly you perceive something is happening or that there's a, an opportunity for you to move. The second one is decision speed. How long does it take you to decide what you're going to do? The third one is execution speed, the, the speed that you take that decision and actually put it into action. So you could group those all into like a mental speed or I think Sean used the term processing speed. Then from there, the fourth category is execution speed. And that's where your, your physical body is what is, delivers that, uh, the decision. It delivers the action, it fires the shot. And then the last category, the fifth one is uh, adaption speed. How quickly can you change your mind and, and actually change the action that you just did? Um, 
And so once you open the door to that, you realize that you can be fast in one area or a couple of areas, slow in another, and the end result is you feel that you are slow. But it's not just one trait that you need to train to improve where your deficit is that is making you not as quick as you are. Um, and so that's, that's kind of a recap of those five categories of speed. It was very helpful for me for self-analysis and then to help other people analyze where they were slower. That makes sense. Wonderful. Thank you. I know we had some questions that we are ready to roll with, unless anybody would like to step no. in before we get started. We love questions. Bring on the questions. Absolutely love questions. All for them. All right. Yeah. So you heard it in the flesh. Bring the questions, all that you have. Go ahead and post them in the chat. We are happy to answer them. If we can't get to them tonight, it is not personal. We will try to get to them. Um, you can head over to the coaches corner. Uh, they're wonderful. You should definitely check it out, join their page. And also please do try to keep everything on topic tonight when you're asking questions. So Without further ado, what if you are not fast? How do you deal with fighters who are faster than you? Shall I start that since I'm the slowest one here? Let's yeah. do it. <laughs> no better person, brother. <laughs> I think one of the reasons most of us end up focusing on speed, especially early on, is we have this perception that since the fight started at the same time for both of us. We both heard the lay on at the same time. There's a race. And if you don't get to the finish line before your opponent, then you lose. So the reality is though, once there's a lay on, there is no race. Yeah, you got to get there before your opponent. But when that race begins, can be flexible. If you have two opponents who will walk up to each other at lay on, move into each other's range, and then work shots and threats and throw and so on. Now you're quick drawing. Now there's actually a race. That race began when you entered, when you both entered range and it finishes when somebody is quicker, faster, better reaction time, whatever. That's the person that wins. What you do is you change when the race starts or you restart the race, okay? One of my typical moves is if a, uh, I want to shut down a person's reaction time or see what the reaction time is. So I often start with threatening shots, fakes, um, or things that give them the impression the race has begun. Move hard into range as a for instance, threaten hard into an elbow. But then I disengage. Essentially what I've done is I started the race and then I've stopped the race because now I want to see how fast they really are, how they respond, uh, are they attacking? Do they go automatically to defense? Then I can disengage and I can restart the race or a different race at a different time. So I know we'll talk more about it. I'll, I'll leave it at that for now, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Sure. So the, the short of that is start, you understand that there's the engagement is the start of a race and the disengagement is stopping the race and you can decide when you engage. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in here with uh, with something as well. Um, so uh, a, a lot of that speed when you when you don't have the hand speed and you're dealing with somebody who is faster than you, um, so a lot of that is is perception. Um, and you know we when you when you know you don't have speed or you know you you are fighting a speed fighter or somebody that has fast hands and has has fast delivery, um, 
you, you get caught up in this thing where you know they're fast, so you try to block them faster than they can throw. Um, and and that is, um, that's a death spiral right there. Uh, because, you know, if, if I see that you're trying to block something faster, I'm going to give you something to block. And then while you're in the middle of that block, I'm going to hit you wherever it is you open up. And I've got the hand speed to, to deliver that, you know, which, which makes me even faster when, when I'm, I'm, I'm hitting you in a spot that is the complete opposite of, of what you're trying to block. Um, so, so one of the things about <clears throat> dealing with that is, you know, our, our brains work really, really fast and you, you got to have some, some faith in that and understand that um, if whatever you think you see, um, if you respond to that, uh, I, I'm a big believer that if you respond offensively to what your opponent is doing, then the defense that you need will, will largely be created for you. Um, if you, if, if you see somebody, if you think they're throwing a flat snap and you respond um, offensively in return to that, um, if it is a flat snap, then, then you're accounting for that and you're probably cross blows or, or maybe get a double kill. Um, so basically if you're, if you're, if you're right, um, then, uh, you know, you're, you're safe. Uh, and if you're wrong, you're still safe. Uh, but, you know, if you think, if you think I'm throwing a flat snap and all you do is just block the flat snap, um, then you're, you're committing all of your defense to the one thing that, that I want you to believe in anyway, and that exposes everything else. And that gives me an opportunity to, to go, to just go somewhere else. So if you respond offensively, um, that's one way that you can kind of counter the speed. Um, and, and whatever your brain thinks is the blow that's coming, if you respond to that, then you're usually going to be pretty safe. Mm -hmm. There are three ways that, that to me were the most reliable when it came to dealing with somebody who's faster than I was. Um, one, of, one of which is if you're dealing with a speedster, somebody you know has got, got quick hands, quick, quick shot, the first one was make him go the long way. Never give him the short path to the target. And that is, you know, if he's got a very wicked flat snap, cover up that side of, of your head to make him go outside of his, his comfort zone in terms of throwing, throwing his fastest shot. Because um, there are people out there that have got a wicked, fast, flat snap, but everything else, they throw at kind of a regular speed. So don't, don't give them a shortcut. Don't hand them the gift of having their fastest shot go right to your head. So the second, the second tip is make sure that the target is moving. A moving target is hard to hit. I mean, that's just flat out straight strategy. You're giving yourself, giving them a present by presenting a head that's not moving. So if you're, if you're sitting there kind of scared, frightened, frozen in time, you're giving them the best gift that they could have, which is a, a still target. Um, so be evasive, continue to move and change angles. One thing about a fast, uh, a fast, a speedster, oftentimes they'll practice on a Pell and a Pell isn't moving. So they'll square up on a Pell and they'll start firing and they'll get a really fast fire right in front of them, but they're not used to hitting something that's off to the side. So as you start to approach and come into range, drift to one side and you'll start to mess with their perfect alignment for that, for that shot that they're really fast at. 
So change angles and just be moving. Uh, like I said, a moving target's harder to hit. So well, can I can I cover that moving target piece? Um, yeah, just because I just posted something on uh, Facebook uh, feed. Um, there's some videos you posted of Lomachenko and uh, uh, Bruce Lee talking about some of these uh, ideas. And I think the movement piece is critical. And uh, I would tell everybody right off the bat, in, in the very beginning of a fight, instead of walking straight at a person, do yourself a favor. Walk at a 45. And when that person turns his body, turn the other 45. Go across them. Still at range, and you'll see a fight develop before you even enter into range. Uh, we spend a lot of time here constantly breaking that front engagement. Um, we always shift off lines. We, we, we jab and we slide. And that's what Tristan Knight, I believe you're talking about, Absolutely. is always being outside that line because that person has to turn to get back in, turn or slide with you. If they're good, they slide with you. But if they turn, they're a beat behind you. And in that side, that beat, you sometimes, if you practice enough, you can throw as they're turning into your perfect turn. You're, you're already waiting for them. And throw, even if you don't hit them, then you're sliding again. Mm -hmm. and, and they're still trying to play catch up. So, you know, I think that's the thing you're talking about. Exactly. Uh, you know, sorry. Well, no, no, that, absolutely. That was a great point. One of the things that I would start to work with people on, because I tried this out myself and it worked great, is instead of walking straight towards somebody, as you're approaching, before you even get to C range, start taking like wider steps and zigzagging. And you'll see one of two, one of three things. Either somebody won't turn as you're starting to drift to one side or the other, or they will overturn. Those are the two, two primaries. The, the kind of the best case is, is either they slide, which is very rare. Not many people do the slide. Yeah, key though. Or, or they have to get every turn exactly right. If they miss even a little bit of it, that gives you a big opportunity. If they underturn or overturn, now you have, you have your approach. And that actually brings up the third, uh, kind of the third strategy that I would use against a speedster, which is I'm going to them never give a speedster his ability to to unleash his speed on you make him consider your own attack and this varies because usually with speedsters you know about them either you fought them before you're familiar with them you know them by reputation um, but you kind of take that initiative away by coming into range on the on the aggressive side uh, because the people that I've run across that have got really fast shots boy, the last thing you want to do is give them all the time in the world to line up their shot and take it. Like, that's just, that's doom. You're walking right into their trap. But if you can come in at off angles and jump them, oftentimes you can take them out of their quick draw game. Uh, and I like the, I like the, uh, the, that term quick draw game because it very much is, describes the who can get to the fa shot faster, yep. you know, who's got the quicker one, but you don't play it. Don't play that with them. Okay, we have a new speaker. Yeah, and um, I apologize for joining late and if no. any of this has been covered before, but I, I want to expand on the idea of range. Uh, Tristan is a lot taller than I am, and uh, I take a somewhat different approach. I, I don't immediately assume that I'm going to go forward and get inside their range. I look at them and I, I, I estimate, and I've gotten pretty good at it, what their effective range is. 
and then I I work just on the edge of that where they think they've got a shot, but they may have to overextend. And that little bit of distance gives me more time to re to evaluate what they're doing, to test what they're doing. It, the slight in and out at the edge of range and moving around the, the edges of it rather than, I agreed, going straight in, not with, with not going straight in. But if I can get them to commit when they don't actually have the shot, uh, because it's just a little bit out of range, that gives me uh, an opportunity to move in. I can also invite that uh, attack by, by leaving something open unless they're so fast that they're going to be even the most minimal movement for defense. And I also advocate in defense that your movements should be, you should be able to, by the way you stand and the way you have your sword and shield or whatever you're using set up, that you can, it takes you less movement to block than it takes them to strike because you have to see that they're attacking. You have to register that and you have to react and that takes longer. So I'm try I try to give myself longer, a longer time to react to the, the attack from somebody who's fast, has fast hand speed. It's very much like uh, if, you, if you've ever played tennis and responded to somebody who's got a very fast serve, you don't stand on the baseline, you stand behind the baseline to give yourself just that little bit more time to react to, to, the, to the serve. Even then they can, a good server can ace you, but you're, you're trying to give yourself just that little bit more time. Um, the other thing I do is look for tells, and we've talked about those before. I'll see people doing that, that kind of movement, but then you can tell before they actually attack, they stop and start to lean in. And all of those are tells that gives me an indicator, a pre-attack indicator that that's the, the fast attack is about to happen. And so I'm looking for those. And also again, estimating what a person's range, effective range is by their height, their the length of their weapon, by the position of their sword side foot is also an indication of range. If it's back, they have less range than if it's, it's closer to even with their, their um, other foot. So uh, the approach is that I'm talking about, these are all different ways of giving yourself a little more time to react to the speedster and, and the fast, very fast attack. And <clears throat> so that if you can frustrate that, that then gives you an advantage. You're taking away um, that very fast attack, like Tristan said, you know, if you, you know, they've only got one fast attack and you can block that and shut it off, you're making them go the long way around. Well, if you can avoid it by, by range, they just can't 
quite get there or they have to overextend. If they have to overextend and then you move in that overextension, that's also a way to use movement. So I'd say range and movement are, and a, a very tight defense are, are good ways to counter somebody who's very fast. All right, I think, uh, are we about done with this one? We'll try to keep the next couple uh, answers to a couple of people here. Um, so let's go ahead and move on. Next question, the reaction gap and how it applies to your strategy. So do you wanna expand on that at all? Well, yeah, and I, I actually put the reaction gap in here and it's funny that, that Eli talked about this. He almost described it perfectly. And that is, um, thank you. Yeah, that it, it bridges right into this topic. And and the reaction gap is, how close do you get to to a problem that you just don't have the time to respond to? Um, last time I had my friend uh, Duke Miguel up here from Anstiora, and he's like, "Oh, Tristan, I, I'm doing this to all my students. You get you got to try this thing." And he comes out and he gives me an index card, and we're on this. Uh, it was a coffee table, kind of a, a long coffee table, but. He set this, this card on the table. He says, what I want you to do, I'm on the other side of the coffee table. I want you to put your hand above the, the index card high enough that you think that if I reach out and I try to grab the card that you can pop your hand down on the card. And he says, how high off the table do you think this needs to be for you to, to be able to react when I actually move? And I could look and I, I could see that all he had to do was move his arm out. His elbow didn't have to move, shoulder didn't have to move. And I know he's fast. Miguel is incredibly quick. And I, you know, I, I put my, my hand about two inches above the card. It's like really that low. Like most people are like, you know, eight inches, nine inches and they think they can get it. I said, no, I, 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 bar I barely think I could get it at two inches. And sure enough, he looked at me and just went and he grabbed the card out from under my hand. Honestly, God, my, my hand was only two inches off the card and I didn't have enough time to see him move and put my hand on it before he took it out from underneath my hand. And he smiled and I said, all right, let's do this again. So I moved the card back off the table. So he had to actually move his shoulder to reach and get it. I said, now try it. And I put my hand about six inches above the card. And as soon as I saw his shoulder move, I put my hand on the card and he couldn't get to it. He's like, nobody's ever foiled that. I said, I just moved to a point where I had, you had to move your whole shoulder, your whole body had to move. And I can see that I can't watch your hands because the hands are quicker than the eye. We've all, we have all heard this. And this comes back to what are you watching when you're watching somebody throw a shot? Are you looking at the tip of the sword? Are you looking at the, the, the sword blade? Are you looking at the hilt? Are you looking at the sh shoulder and the body? If you're looking at the tip and the sword, you're gonna miss it. That stuff moves too fast for you to track it. So when it comes down to what are you watching for? And Eli touched on this. What are you watching for, for the signal that somebody is throwing a shot? I've found that watching the body, the body doesn't lie. When you watch the body, you will find, you'll see that shot. If you're chasing the tip of the sword or the blade or the hand, you'll get deceived. And that's where, that's where everybody will see much faster than they really are when you're not looking at what the body move, movement is. I'm going to half disagree, actually. Okay. Um, I, th in my experience, what you're saying is exactly true because most everybody leads with their body. Um, I find because I have always been slower that I use my body to lie all the time. Mm -hmm. 
So well, certainly are faints and fakes. And, exactly. And, and I Absolutely. and I live off of those. Um, and those who read my body first, uh, typically are given false information. Mm -hmm. um, so with my students, what I typically tell them is I have them because your eyes have to aim someplace. However, any of us in martial arts understand that where your eyes are looking isn't necessarily the information you're getting. So that's half of the point of it. I have them look ideally about four inches above, assuming sword and shield, about four inches above the sword hand at the blade. If it's a two-handed weapon, you should about the same distance above the lead hand. Because no matter what their body does, what feints are thrown, what direction their body takes, that point is the rotation point of the weapon, and that can't lie. Yes, you can tip a sword to a different area and then move it to fire at a new area. But once you move it for the new area, you've thrown away your feint, and it doesn't work anymore. So in my experience, sword feints are useless. So I don't typically use them. I typically faint with my body. That said, the reason I want my eyes there, I want my students' eyes there is because that sword is the fastest part and the only part that we really care about in our game. So I keep my eyes on the weapon, but then I use my peripheral vision to pick on, on what their body's doing. Mm -hmm. The reason I prefer that is because it allows me to follow their body exactly like Tristan's talking about but still respond to the weapon because that's in the end, that's really what I care about. Mm -hmm. So be careful watching just the body. Remember that sword is your primary weapon. The body I have found is what you need to focus on in most martial arts because you don't know what's coming. You focus on somebody's fists or their feet or their hips or whatever, and they lead with one limb and take you out with another. Sure. We don't have four weapons here. So we sometimes have two, we typically have one. So your eyes, in my experience, belong on your weapon, not on your body's opponent's body, but use the peripheral vision to pick up that body movement. You know, I wanted to add one thing to that, and that is the, the difference in vision between your cone of vision, and that's the focal point that you actually look at, versus the what they call the soft gaze, which is using your peripheral vision. You don't have enough eye speed to look and change your gaze at, you know, uh, legs or feet to shoulders to sword to tip to shield. You really want to calm that down and use your peripheral vision generally. Um, and the misdirection, if you allow, allow yourself to draw that focal point, whether it's to their eyes, to their hand, to the tip or to the blade, the more that you shift your gaze like that and use your focus, the, the slower you will seem because your observation time will be increased and and i think that that's what you're describing is actually using your peripheral vision it seems to slow time down believe it or not yeah at least and that was my experience i i would agree and we're you know brongolder and i are same practice um i'm a peripheral vision person i mean people even will say and get annoyed by me watching other fights while still fighting so so 90 percent of what i do is i'm gonna see your toe move i'm gonna see that shoulder move a little bit i'm going to see your weapon move a little bit and i use all of that as input so but i think where romweller comes at he comes back to so where do we look some people get caught up in that connection between eye to eye and that that really gets you in a bad place if you get caught in that connection so um i i, I think there's a place in there that we're just talking really small things but i think when it comes back to the basics 
gaining that peripheral vision is a is an exercise by itself that has to be practiced. Yeah. Uh, Sean, do you have something on that? Yeah, the way I always describe that is uh, that you look at nothing so that you can see everything. Um, it's kind of that thousand yard stare sort of thing. Um, you know, it's um, again the peripheral vision, but uh, typically that my focal point is a um, there's there's a kind of a triangle that goes from like the the point of your chin down to the the points of your collarbone. And I'll just kind of look in that general area because that's close enough to the face and the eyes that people think you're looking at them. Um, but by looking at that, I'm not really looking at anything at all. And that allows me to, uh, to kind of take in everything. Another way I describe it is, um, um, if you look at a, if you look at a painting or you look at, you look at a landscape, right? Um, when you, when you look at a horizon, you see landscape, you don't see detail, you know, you see a mountain range, you don't see a tree. Um, and, and because you can open up that vision and, and, and look at and, and let everything come in, um, it's a lot easier to, um, to, to kind of, to pick up on, on everything, not just the, not just the one thing. Can I actually add one just tangible thing that, that people can add as they hear that? And that is if you do that, and I like your description of the chin, I've heard it chin to the shoulders, like anywhere in that triangle, kind of let your focal point float in that triangle and then use your peripheral vision to watch the body. If you want to get started with this, one of the best tangible ways to do it is keep your eyes floating there, but check whether or not which foot is forward. Are they goofy foot or are they same foot without looking down? Like if you want to try to just test yourself in, in sparring, that's a good way to start it. I like um, it. Just as a, as a tangible suggestion. And um I, I want to try to connect a, a few things here. I think that the ability to develop that peripheral vision where you take in a lot of those things and understanding body movement leads to being able to, as Ron Valder said, be deceptive with your body, which also leads into feints and fakes and deception, which we're going to talk about another time. Uh, being able to to read movement get, helps you gain an understanding of how to use your movement to mislead your opponent, to misdirect your opponent. And um, I think there are some sword feints that, that work, but uh, the most effective combinations I've seen of feints are either with, it's a, it, it, it depends on reading your opponent. You have to be able to read your opponent effectively to understand what kind of feint will deceive them. And sometimes it's the body and sometimes it's the hand. It depends where they're looking. By developing your own ability to see, you develop an understanding to uh, an ability to see what your opponent is seeing and see how do they react to a little movement here, a little movement here, a movement of your shoulders or your hips or your feet. How do they react? Uh, I think um, Duke Sean mentioned the OODA loop, the where you, yeah, yeah, where you're uh, analog, you're you're gaining information, you're analyzing it, you're adapting to it, you're acting on it. Um, I've I've reworded it sometimes to explain it to. 
two people have reworded it that way. But in order to gather that information, as Ronvalder said, you're testing them. You're, you're doing things to see how they react. Are they reacting? If you move this way, do they slide? Do they pivot? Do they turn? If you're moving this way, if you move your foot, if you move your hand, if you, and all of that is information. And from that, you can infer where they're looking and can you get them to focus like a magician to look at this hand when it's actually the other hand that's doing the trick. And so being able to see lets you eventually be able to lie with your body to misdirect. I think uh, of all of us, I think Eliyahu, without actually saying it, has pointed out something that's extremely valuable. We're talking here about some fairly advanced technique for those who are listening who are not at this point you need to understand that all the basics you've been working on being in stance consistently throwing um the the list of things that sean has been showing you for years uh, how do you throw your shot how do you stand how do you hold your shield how do you block how do i move my stance all that stuff it may not be getting you success but I'll tell you right now, if you do not have them, you can't do any of this stuff. Of, of us all, arguably, Eli is probably the simplest fighter. He doesn't do much, but he does them all at the right time, in the right place. And because he does them right, he gets kills. That's why. Mine, as an example, if I'm doing everything right, I can be very effective, but I'm frustrated every time I don't do something right because that's when I either fail an attack or typically get myself killed I did something wrong and often it's my basics that messed up my ability I was trying to do advanced techniques without my basics and that gets me killed would anybody like to chime in on that before we move on to the next now let's move on. Let's uh, move on to the next question there. Yep. All right. Bring um, on those questions. Yeah. And actually, we've had um, some people in the chat on Facebook who are excited about this particular one. Uh, the topic is training for suddenness and how to remove telegraphing your mo your movements. I, I think I'm going to uh, jump on this one to begin with. Um, so, you know, this, this kind of talks about hand speed and, and how we, you know, how we get that, right? Um, there's repetition, muscle memory. Um, you know, there's, there's a great mythology in, in our sport about the, the size of the, of, of the sword or the weight of the sword. Um, you know, there's, there's this idea that, that's, that lighter swords, you know, are faster and that heavier swords hit harder and, um, and, and really nothing could be further from the truth. There's only one way to, uh, to improve your delivery speed, and that is uh, through muscle memory, through pell work. Um, I, I did uh, about a year and a half of pell work before I set foot on the fighting field at all. Um, and granted, you know, I was like 12, 13 years old um, before that happened um, while, while I was doing pell work and because I did pell work for hours on end because at the time, like I really had nothing better to do with my time. 
Um, so it was never really work to me. It was just, uh, you know, it's something I get to do, not something I have to do. Um, and, you know, because I'd spent a year and a half doing pro work uh, before I, I fought at all, uh, a lot of people considered me to be a natural. Um, yeah, I, I naturally went out to the tree and, and hit the tree with this, with this stick for hours and hours on end. And I threw more shots in that year and a half in pell work than than most people do in pell work in their entire life um and you know for for my for my estimation uh pell work muscle memory you know it's it's you know speed doesn't come from throwing fast speed comes from throwing exactly the same way exactly the same exactly the same shot exactly the same way thousands of times um as we've as we've noted on this this show several times and it bears repeating slow is smooth smooth is fast um and that's how that's how that's how we get to to that. And if you are doing all of your shots exactly the same way, and that everything look it, it always looks the same when it starts, that's how you reduce telegraphing. Um, so that if all of your shots look exactly the same way, by the time your opponent figures out what is different about it, it it's too late. Um, I would. I would agree with that, but I also would like to add that um, <clears throat> it's not simply pell work, and we did talk about pell work. It's the right, it's practicing the right thing. Per, it's only, practice only makes perfect if it's perfect practice. And there's a lot of techniques of pell work. We talked about some of those. I think also one of the additional aspects of that is in terms of eliminating tells is having a trained observer, a, a teacher, an instructor to help people eliminate those, to say you're, you're and, and I'll, I will point this out to people that there, there's a little bit of a, a movement, there's a tell, there's a point out what they're doing that they aren't even aware of. And then I'll, I'll point it out, explain it to them, and I'll have them show them how to do it without it. And then I'll have them do it. It's a that that do undo do teaching technique. Um, <clears throat> but if you're practicing pell work, if somebody is starting out and they're practicing pell work, it really helps to have somebody show them how to do it and check in with them repeatedly to make sure that they aren't practicing bad habits with it and practicing tells and practicing you know, winding up and, and things like that. Because the the fastest thing is the is the most most direct, although sometimes the most effective is not the most direct. It's the going a different way. It's going around where they think you're going. It's going a different way. But the, the fastest is generally the most direct without any tells, without any giveaways without any wind up it's and and master bruce lee talks about that connected chain of the body in unwinding from the foot through the hip and he talks about all of that and that's it's the same sort of thing that we teach in terms of but trying to reduce it to very subtle without any any wind up without any rearing back um and that having an observer to help correct that behavior 
right at the start is very helpful. Cool. Uh, one of the tangible ideas I want to throw at people, and, th and this you can do at home with your own Pell, and that is, and this is something I, I got from the traditional martial arts realm, and they call this magnet theory. And the idea is that whether it's a punch or it's a sword blow, it's easy to think in your mind like you're pushing the sword forward or you're pushing your, your arm forward. And what happens is your body loads up behind it to push, like you're pushing a car out of a snowbank or something. Magnet theory works the opposite way. Imagine like your, your sword or, or your fist or whatever it is that's flying forward. Imagine it's like a magnet and it's being drawn to another magnet and it's just going. Imagine the sword leading the blow or the fist leading the blow rather than your body pushing it. When your body pushes it, it tends to tense up and, it, and shoulders lift and all kinds of weird muscle things happen that wind up being that telegraph. So as you're doing your pell work, and I totally agree with the uh, perfect practice makes perfect. In fact, I, I painted on in the wall of my dojo, practice makes permanent. Whatever you're doing in practice will become permanent. So make sure whatever it is you're doing, you're doing really well and not miss mispracticing. So think of your sword, because your sword, as it flies through the air, doesn't need a lot of <coughs> muscle to get it going it needs the power at the end. And a punch is very much the same way. If you drive a punch forward very hard through the air, you're, you're wasting all kinds of muscle and you're getting in your own way more than you are delivering that, that weapon to the target, whether the weapon is your knuckles or the weapon is a, a blade. Either way, get it to there and then the power comes through at the very end part. So think of that sword being like a magnet and it's just drawn to its target. Let it fly towards the target and deliver the power at the end with that kinetic chain that goes from sword through the arm, through the shoulder, through the hip, through the legs, back to the ground. So think of it like a magnet, let it fly to its target. And this will bring on a relaxed level of relaxation and there's power with relaxation, not power with tension or power with muscle. So that would be my suggestion for a tangible way to try some pell work with, with that principle. Keep the magnet in mind. That's some great suggestions. I'm actually making notes for myself. So when I get a chance to go use them. Um, last weekend, um, a few of us wanting to fight decided to get together, but we felt it was too dangerous, of course, to actually be near each other. So we did, we ended up doing Pell work. Um, and what I found advantageous about it was that we had, what do we have? We had four people there all varying levels of skill, but all skilled. And one of the big advantages wasn't so much that we were using a Pell or actually doing something, which was really nice to be doing, but it was that we were watching each other. Uh, my own dependent was there. So I was watching her, working with her, and I was able to find some more improvements in how she's throwing. And then what I did, which I didn't think about until I did it was, watching is a fantastic tool i always did it when uh, and like i mentioned the last time the one of the locations we used to fight in in the winter was in a church at the time there was an area i want to say it's 12 by 20 maybe 15 by 20 that we could fight in the rest of the we weren't able to so it ended up being like this pair bear pit thing you only two people were fighting everybody else was kind of standing in line i realized i learned a lot about how to read opponent um 
from standing in that line. So don't waste that time. Uh, just the other day, it was a big advantage for all of us who are not using the Pell to be ones who were watching others use the Pell. So what I did with my dependent in particular is when I was on the Pell, I had her watching me and I said, all right, you're gonna watch me and you tell me what I'm doing wrong because I know I'm doing stuff wrong. And she was able to pick out some of it. Uh, she was saying, well, okay, you corrected it, but you did this, you did this and this, and then you corrected it. But so she's reading it. So that helped me because it meant that it gave me second input, big advantage, but it also helped her as well. Cause now she's learning how to read an opponent. She's learning how to pick out those mistakes. And that's going to be a tool for her later to use. So get somebody that you can watch and be watched by. If you don't, then there's videos. Have somebody watch your video, watch somebody else's video, and then talk to them about it. All right, I think it's my turn. Um, I just posted a Kimbo Slice video in the, uh, on the Facebook comments area. Um, and it's specifically around the idea of suddenness. Uh, and uh, I think everybody's touched base a little bit on each part of it. There's lots of things that make it up. One thing we talked about earlier was that peripheral vision picking up movement. The key on that is even peripheral vision can be fooled itself. And that is if you have less, if your movement is all going straight towards someone, it's not picked up nearly as fast as an outside movement like this. So. Uh, if you look at the Kimbo Slice video, it, it talks about that. Earlier in that video, it also talks about what Tristan was just talking about and that relax. When you relax, there's that tension in your body, which immediately somebody recognizes at, at, a, at a level, gets seen. And, and they use that to react even before your sword's done. And in the video, he talks about using the, the hand goes first and the body follows. It's, it's a simple idea. It's, it's not 100% the truth because what we're trying to actually do is get everything lined up almost perfect. But all of those little pieces from ground, from your toes digging in, up through your legs, through your hip, through your body, through your shoulder, through your arm, through your hand, all of that is one. And that's where we're trying to get to. But uh, I would suggest uh, watch that video. It talks about going straight at, at people instead of rotational. Um, not that that's the rotational is bad. Believe me, I've seen, I've been hit with a lot of rotational blows in my life, but you know, you, it's as small as, as I bring, I suck my breath in before I do something. And in fact, the big piece is you want to almost breathe out with a huge expel of energy at the end where all that power is delivered. And that's, mm -hmm. that's, you know, that Bruce Lee's one inch punch, all of the energy is let out of you. So if I, I would suggest you know, that's the suddenness we talk about, you know, and, and we talked about it a little last week, uh, the, you know, that, that idea that a most relaxed guy in the room is usually the most dangerous. Uh, so uh, tension is a big part of that. I, I hope the video helps folks. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll let it go on. We do have a question regarding speed and power. Um, for speed and power, is hip rotation the only way of generating force in a blow? 
I, no. I think you got, I, I'm standing here. You guys don't get to see this, but I, I get to see all the coaches' faces and, and, and they're all like shaking their head no. <laughs> <laughs> so guys, I, I have a feeling everybody has something to talk about. Let's keep it real short for everyone so we can get to more questions. All right. Uh, the short answer is no. Tip's not the only way. Tip's one of the uh, part of it. Bron has just described how, uh, in uh, fact, uh, so did Tristan. It's the whole body, literally from the toe out through your hand that's going to develop the power and the speed. Um, I have seen some impressively, uh, almost excessively hard shots thrown using just an arm and shoulder. Um, but those things take special strength to do that. You can train it. You absolutely can train it. Um, but be careful. You're heading down a road that's asking for injury. Um, I have, I found for a while I had changed the way I was throwing and it did seem to make me a little faster because I was throwing primarily hand and shoulder. And after a period of time, I had two shots left that I could throw that didn't cause me abject pain. And when I finally had it look looked at, I had slightly dislocated both the bones in my hand and my elbow because I was throwing everything with my arm. So uh, something I learned from Duke Dog, because his training is not just in what we do. He has had uh, other training with a wide range of swords, all the way from foil, all the way up to the, the wood wasters that we use. And as a general rule, what he said was the lighter the weapon, the farther out your rotation point is. So when you're working with a foil, most of your work is coming off your fingers and your wrist. And as the weapon got heavier and you went up to starting to be a cutlass, now you're rolling with your arm and you get into heavier weapon, your body has to be behind it. But I and a few of us can tell you from experience, if you want to generate all that power from your arm and shoulder, you can absolutely do it. And then when you're 50, like us, you can have shoulder problems too. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Along those lines, you know, one of the things that I, I often say about, uh, about good mechanics, you know, and, and related to, you know, that arm strength is, is you, you can do it. But um, the, one, of the, one of the things I tell people is, you know, I can teach you good mechanics, but I can't teach you to have a forearm the size of a ham. Um, if you have, uh, powerful forearms and you have the muscle strength to do that, yeah, you, you can do that. But that is a, that, that is a recipe for, for short, uh, really short fighting career. Um, I'm, I'm a, I'm a little different in how I, how I get my power. Um, I don't use my hips for power. Um, I use my hips uh, to generate motion, to get the stick moving in the first place. Um, I rely heavily on, and, and it wasn't until just recently that I realized that how much, how heavily I rely on physics, right? You take a two pound object uh, traveling at a certain speed, uh, force equals mass times acceleration, um, and, and you get a certain amount of rotation on that stick. Um, and it is going to deliver the kind of, kind of power that you need. When I started doing power work again, I was, you know, 12, 13 years old and I did not have the body mass behind me to just put the arm strength into it. I, and, and really I never have. Um, and so I use the physics of the stick. So this, the hip rotation that I use is just to get the stick moving. Um, there, there are definitely techniques where you can kind of bear down on your hips at the end of a shot to be able to kind of drive things in there. 
um, I don't, I don't do that. Um, I get it all off of stick rotation. Um, and, and it's a micro rotation. It is a very, my, my stick rotation, my hip rotation is, is so deeply refined at this point that you can't see it at all. Um, you, know, you, you actually have to look at the frame by frame to see, you know, my, my belt move, uh, to actually see that I'm doing any kind of hip rotation at all. So I don't, I don't use my hips for power. Um, I use the, I use the stick. I use the, the basic physics because that's what I had to use because I didn't have the strength to just plow it through. Excellent. Yeah, th actually, that's a good point. And I remember having a chat with Sean a long time ago when we we're actually talking about Bronis's uh, sword form. And I remember him saying this, using this phrase, he says, if you ask Bronis, he's probably got circles within circles of what his body's doing to deliver that, that blow. And that conversation actually made me go back and audit how I would throw the sword. Now, I'm pretty tall, fairly lean. I don't have a lot of strength. I don't have forearms like hams or have some of the builds that some of these guys do that, are, that can throw the sword around just by the strength of their arm and their shoulder. And what I found, I, I would use two different, very slight, just like Sean was talking, very small hip rotations. I'd use one to start the sword going from, from dead stop to going. Then I would relax. And at the very end, just before impact, I'd put another hip turn on it to add power just at the end. So in between there was relaxation, but there was a little bit of motion to start the sword and, a, and more to deliver that kinetic chain at the end. And, but there had to be relaxation in the middle. If there was tension throughout, it would just slow everything down but to answer the, the base question about hip rotation, controlling your center, there is a lot of power that's available there. The problem is, is that power does come at a price. If you just do one simple rotation, thinking like you're a, a basic, uh, imagine like a, a cylinder with a stick attached to it and that thing is swinging, the body is much more intricate than that. So yes, you will use hip rotation and hip rotation comes from the legs. And the thing that I like about the legs is the legs are bigger. They have more power than the upper body does. And I'm not an, uh, an upper body uh, strength kind of guy. So I don't, I can't get away with using my chest and shoulders to throw blows. And I think a lot of people in the SCA have a, have a similar thing. Like, well, how do you adapt your body to be able to throw blows with power and do it efficiently? And that's going to come, it's going to be a little different for everybody. Even people with the same body type will have different shot dynamics. But the, the more you do with your legs, the less you're taking off the responsibility of your upper body to do the, to throw the shot. And then as you do that, as you use your legs more, you're going to find that the shoulder wear, the elbow wear, the wear on your arms is going to reduce. You're not going to have the same problems. And I can speak from experience because I've had shoulder surgery, uh, reconstruction because of a bad rotator cuff on my sword arm. So I was doing it bad for, for a lot of years. Uh, you know, I was trying to keep up, but I learned the hard way that really the power comes from out of the legs, comes from the body rotation. You will be able to find power through there and it takes the stress off of the upper body. Thank you. Um, Duke Eliyahu, would you like to comment on Anything regarding that? Um, yeah, I think that uh, there are there are lots of ways to generate power, and certainly it can 
come from the you can do it with the sword but i used to know a, a, a knight who did a lot he was very tall very strong and did a lot of hand rotation with a lot of great power and now his arm and shoulder are all messed up so <clears throat> i've been fighting for a long time and the i've had some um some wear and tear injuries but uh fortunately they've been um not as frequent as some people and, and not it didn't happen as soon I, I haven't had the shoulder problems um <clears throat> i think that uh understanding that your movement comes from your movement comes from your center and your power can come from your center as well. Understanding how to work your movement and your power together is essential because some people can throw a great shot when they're standing there, but can't when they're moving, which, which again is when I was talking about tells the people who move around and then stop before they throw because they can't throw on the move. They can't generate the power um, in movement. Do we all, when we're, I tend to, when I'm talking about things, I tend to use my hands. You can tell like fighters <laughs> across the room talking about yeah, fighting, do it. See them doing this, right? We all do it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but um, I think that understanding your your own body movement your own body mechanics and and how that works is essential i had a um i had a squire who's now a knight who had been fighting a while and i before i took him as a squire and i had to start him over and i said you you, ha you have to trust me here but i'm going to have to start you over and i had to teach him how to move parts of his body independently because he you know he he danced like frankenstein's monster you know he, he was very stiff the hips and the shoulders were didn't move independently so i had to design a series of exercises for him to get that movement so we could then isolate parts so we could break down the movement into its components to try to to build that build that up again to to build a sound um structure for both movement and for power but also accuracy um i think that power is power in a blow is one way we convince our opponent that they've been struck and that's what we're really trying to do. We're trying to convince them to decide that they have been struck with a good blow. One of the ways of doing that is power. One of the ways of doing that is placement. One of the ways of doing that is feints. If you can so fool someone that you hit them and their defense was elsewhere, <clears throat> You don't have to blast them usually because they'll say you got me. 
some people need more power to be convinced. Some people need placement. If you can strike them right across the eyes and they see it there, then they're convinced. So there are different levels, uh, different components for how to convince your opponent that they have been successfully struck. And power is one way of doing that. And it's a tool and should not be neglected. Great, we have some questions from our viewers. Let me pull up. All right, would you say power generation is dependent on position and range? See, now we're back to power. And when Sean followed me up, when we talked about whether or not you can use the something beside your hips for power, uh, he nailed it. This isn't about power. Yeah. So watch yourselves every time you ask a question as well, what can I do to get more power? How to get more power? Do I do this for more power? Maybe I should do it this way to get more power. Just stop. <laughs> power is the word power is too easily related to strength. And though strength will certainly get you a powerful shot, it leads to a whole plethora of other problems that have to be dealt with. The tells, um, the fatigue, a number of problems comes with using sheer strength for power. So what I would recommend is listen to what these guys have been saying. Your technique and body mechanics, Sean talking about throwing the perfect shot, that's your power. So whether you're close to somebody or far from them, the power can still be generated if your mechanics are correct. Now, I will change a shot if I'm really close. As a for instance, when I typically throw a shot, my hip pushes towards my target as I throw the shot. But if I get extremely close, there's a couple shots that I can throw as I pull my hip backwards. But it's still technique. It's still my body. It's still my whole body. It's still my hip generating power. All I'm doing is accelerating the stick. So there have been a couple times I've hit somebody. It happens to catch them in the right spot, but it's been hard enough to make them drop their weapon. And I would classify that as a powerful shot. But on impact, my hand was open, it was literally open. I have two fingers hooking the back of the handle so it doesn't come out of my hand. And these top ones were literally open. I did not hit them with any strength, but I threw the shot straight and fast. And once that stick accelerates, that's power. So watch yourselves using strength for this. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll jump on that next. Um with um as, as long as long as you can reach the target uh you know you can you can deliver any amount of of power um in in range the only the only range i mean if you're in range you can deliver power uh but but as ron was saying that you know be, be careful with with this idea that you have to be stronger or that you have to put more power into blow because um that's not that's not necessarily what people in our sport feel. If you put more power into it, you end up getting more, more push. Um, the thing that people feel in our sport, as far as knowing whether or not they have been struck is they feel energy transfer. Mm -hmm. They feel, they feel punch 
or they feel like that kind of concussive punch, they don't feel push. Um, when your body is moved, if you put more power into something and, and you move somebody, um, the, the equilibrium in, in your, your, and your, your balance corrects uh, everything that's going on, they don't even know that they're being physically moved because um, their, their, their ear canal will, will compensate for that. Um, what they feel is they feel that snap and they feel that punch power. They feel energy transfer. Um, so if you want people to actually recognize that they've been um, struck with a blow, you want to make sure you have good energy transfer um, rather than, and, and, and being stronger and putting more muscle behind that um, doesn't make them feel the blow any better. And it leads to, as he said, it leads to a lot of problems down the road with, you know, just trying to be stronger and, and it's, and it creates more tells and it's, it's easier to block. you know, there's a lot of, a lot of people that throw good, you know, that you can, you can see this blow coming from a mile away, you know, you have to block it because if you don't, it's going to hurt like hell. Um, but, but you can see it coming the whole time because it, there, it, there's so much effort being put into power that, uh, that it just gives it all away. Great, we have another question. Whomever speaks first will get the first to go at this. Which do you think is better, using a slightly heavier sword and physics, or using a lighter sword and relying on body mechanics to generate sufficient power? Body mechanics to generate sufficient power. That, that's your answer right there. It's not the equipment. It's body mechanics to generate sufficient power. Now, that said, to handle the specifics between what kind of weapon you should choose, using a sword as an example, as in the question, should I use a heavier one or a lighter one? You should use the right weight for you. Uh, I had longer, I've had longer sword. Right now, my whole Risa Rattan is 34 inches. They used to be 42, 43 inches. Um, and I have generated power with my backup dagger for sufficient shot at 18 inches counting the handle so but they're all different that little tiny stick requires more power again like sean said you accelerate the stick and there's power but when you've got an 18 inch stick there's not a lot of power there so your body mechanics have to be dead on and there has to be a little more uh strength behind it i find um i worked so i've worked with a heavier sword I find for me, it fatigues me and slug, it makes me sluggish faster because it's too much weight. However, I also went to a much lighter sort, you know, trying to find that light rattan that's just the right thickness, right? It's as light, it's as small, it's as fast as I can get. And what ends up happening is two things. I hit people really fast and half the time they don't take it. So now I have to put more body behind it to try to make up for the fact that I have no mass in my acceleration. And then I end up actually causing myself more physical problems because my weapon's too light. So there's a, there's a weight and a size that works well for people. In general, uh, on a side note of that, I see too many guys, I'm gonna say guys, because I see it most frequently when a male is teaching a small female. She's small, so let's give her a small sword. That small sword requires a greater mass behind it find the sword that it, she, that the fighter you're training can accelerate well and that's the right weapon so it's not lighter or heavier 
It's not thicker. It's not shorter or longer. It's what's right for your body mechanics. And that's going to be experimenting. And what we talked about before, having some with experiments or experience watch you. I'll tell you, Bronson and I both looked at people, had them fight, and they're like, well, I'm having this problem, blah, blah, blah. And Bronson will go, you know what? You cut one inch or one and a half or two inches off that piece of rattan, then you come talk to me. And they think it's like magic. It's just they didn't have the right size sword. I think I want to add to that too. Um, uh, as as a speed fighter myself, um, you know, I'll, I'll, I, I have good hand speed, and there are people that think that I want to have the lightest possible sword so that I can throw faster, and that's just nonsense. Um, in fact, uh, like I said, you know, my speed comes from muscle memory, um, comes from throwing, you know no kidding, uh, several million shots in my lifetime. Um, but um, several years ago, I started um, using the, uh, the plastic uh, Baldur basket hilts. And those things are so much lighter than any, anything else that I've used, um, even the aluminum uh, hilts. Uh, those things are so much lighter that when I was using inch and a quarter rattan, like I was using with the metal basket, um, I could not hit hard enough. And, and the measure of how much faster I could hit with those really is negligible. But the fact that I couldn't hit hard enough with, you know, this, this great theory of the smallest possible stick that I can have so that I can be fast um, doesn't do any good, you know, because I can, yeah, I can hit you fast really hard, a lot and you won't feel any of it. You won't, you won't even know that you got touched at all. I actually had to go from an inch and a quarter rattan to inch and three eighths rattan. Um, and that's not a lot. Um, my swords are right at two pounds. Um, and with an inch and a quarter uh, rattan, I could probably shave that down to inch and, you know, one and three quarter pounds, maybe. Um, it's not going to be that much. But um, yeah, this, this idea that I have to have a faster, a lighter sword so that I can be faster uh, just doesn't pan out. Um. Uh if I can offer something, I think uh, in terms of swords, I've, yeah, there's a certain weight and a certain length, but I focus on a, a lot that on the balance too, because um, <clears throat> uh, rotating, be, being able to rotate the sword around its own center of gravity to accelerate the tip is one way of generating force at the, at the very end. It's that, that, snap that and it and there's a way of doing that but it requires a balance and i endeavor to balance my sword i use a um, stainless steel bar stock basket hilt which is not the heaviest it's certainly not the, as heavy as some i've had but not the lightest either because i i control to to get the center of balance of the sword at a certain distance which is usually uh, a few inches in front of the the hilt um, <clears throat> which is similar to historical swords as well of a, of a certain era it uh, depends on the sword depends on the era of course and depends on their usage but we're using a cut and thrust sword and I'm and I'm so I'm looking at at that the balance point because I 
I can hold my sword with, you know, balanced on a fingertip a couple of inches from, I'd have to measure it again, exactly what it is, a few inches in front of the hilt because I think the balance is important as well. I agree, if it's too light, you have to put more force behind it. If it's too heavy, you can't move it as well. It's, it's the Goldilocks sword, which is not to say the magic sword, you know, the magic secret weapon of combination of rattan and foam and duct tape that I've seen some people come up with that is absurd. It's a properly weighted, properly proper length, properly balanced sword for the person who's using it. That said, really a really skilled fighter can adapt to lots of different weapons because they've learned to feel how the weapon is informing them it needs to be used. Awesome. We have another question. Basically, the question is, um, does speed and follow through equate to power? It sounds like speed and follow through. Yes, I'm hesitating because I'm hearing speed and follow through and I'm interpreting them under the definitions we've now given for speed, which is uh, our big emphasis on proper body mechanics. Uh, follow through, I'm going to interpret, interpret that as where you're, where you're ending your shot. Are you ending your shot in your target? Uh, I think most everybody with martial arts training has learned that whatever weapon you're using, your body or another one, that shot should end at least a few inches inside your target. Um, so that's really where you're targeting. Uh, I had a problem for a while where I thought I was throwing great shots and I'm hitting people and everybody's like, too light, too light, too light, too light. And it turns out it wasn't the shot at all. It was me pulling shots off the surface and not going in. So that to me, that's follow through. The other side of that is when we did the Pell work, uh, my friends and I uh, just recently, one of them is one of our newer knights, uh, Sir Ingolf, who was one of my squires. Um, he has incredible speed and incredible strength. So <laughs> finding a happy medium for him is interesting. Uh, but what we found is in a couple of the shots he was throwing, he actually, he was trying to do speed but the power got into it, the strength. And he was actually, though it was fast and accurate, I could see his power ending as much as two to three feet past his target. He was literally trying to cleave the target as opposed to putting the shot into the target. He was going well on through it. Um, just a, a couple of things. Uh, it sounded from the question like they were alluding to uh, force times mass equals um, a force uh, mass times acceleration equals force or uh, velocity a power divided by velocity equals force. I think I've got those formulas correct. That certainly there are physics involved in this and but that's not again, that's kind of missing the point that a blow has to be of sufficient force and placement to convince your opponent that they were struck. 
So just as Ron Valder said, just focusing on power is not thinking about it the right way. And just focusing on, if, if I'm understanding the question correctly, just focusing on, you know, do I go faster? Do I, get, will I hit harder? That's not right to faster is only, there are a lot of things that go into speed or, which is the whole subject. And we've talked about those relaxation and position and, and technique and all of that. So don't focus on the formula. And this is, I'm essentially saying, don't be, don't be mathematically analytical about it. And that's coming from me. And I'm often over analytical about everything. So um, <clears throat> there are other ways to think about it. And there are human factors to consider as well. Cool. So Vesper, did you did you want me to cover the que that question or just the comment? I was ready for you to do either. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, I wanted to throw one thing, in, and that is, I wanted to, to leave a, a, another tangible uh, thing to look for, and and this feathers into sort of the wrap up on this episode, and that is, when it comes to speed, keep in mind that there are people that have got fast hand speed that do not have fast foot speed. If they've got fast hands, you can outmaneuver them. Outmaneuver them with your feet. Yes. Generally, good footwork will win fights. So don't let yourself get drawn into the trap of thinking I have to out hand speed somebody who's fast. Instead, think outmaneuver them. And this comes into what what the Eli was talking about in the question here, and that is, uh, you can think of it this way: It's always going to be harder to land a shot on somebody who's in good position. If you want to really land a shot on them, take them out of their position. And you do that by maneuvering. Uh, a friend of mine long, long ago said, SCA fighting is the art of convincing somebody that they've, they've been bested. Exactly. I've found that, that doing that merely by the PSI that I deliver with the sword or with the speed that I can hit them is not as convincing as maneuvering them into such a horrible position that I don't even have to land a shot on them and they go, I, I'm done. You just have totally taken advantage of me and I don't even want to be hit. In fact, thank you for not hitting me because <laughs> yep. you've outmaneuvered me. That you do with your footwork. And and the wrap up point that I wanted to to put on this, and I know we've got a few other questions and we're happy to to take these offline and address them in the in the, the Facebook forum too, but we're getting close to our, our limit here. And that is a number of topics have come up in this episode that we have thought of other episodes to go into further detail, such okay. as how to analyze a fight uh, with the point that I just had. When you watch somebody fight and you're like, I'm gonna be fighting them in, in the next round of this tournament, what is their hand speed? What is their foot speed? What am I gonna take advantage of to overcome their strength? and deal with them on their weakness. So that will be part of it. Uh, you know, we've got a number of other other topics. We're gonna actually gonna be putting a poll up of, of five episodes that we're thinking about doing next. And we wanna get your input for which of the topics you would like to hear from next. Uh, so we'll be putting that up in the next couple of days, but we love the questions and we, we actually really like the, the uh, engagement that, that people are having on the forum. So we just got over 300 people on there and we're climbing fast, so it's it's pretty exciting. So is there anything else anybody would like to add to kind of wrap this one up? Uh, I'll, I'll add something real quick. Everything we've talked about, we're talking about how 
what you can do to make yourself into this position, your body position, uh, consistent technique, being in the right place, throwing the right technique, blah, 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 all that stuff. That's really important. The second part of this, which is what this question is talking about, is all those things, the easiest way is once you get them, then you use them to take them away from your opponent. You put him in the position of being the guy who isn't, doesn't have a sort. Branis would beat me by threatening my elbow and then my hip. He'd pull my hand down and my hip back. Now I'm pointing really, quite frankly, off to the side of the floor. Now he can throw whatever the heck he wants because he's not worried about my weapon anymore. So what he's taught me over time is my Pavlovian response now is if he threatens my elbow or, or hip or anybody does, I correct my stance. I make it a better stance so I can shut that down. So that's it. Learn everything we're talking about here. And when you get it, you take it away from the other guy. You be the only one out there with it. I'll, I'll throw one, one last thing in here too. We were talking earlier about, uh, you know, decision-making speed. Um, and, you know, one of the things I talk about all the time is uh, if you make better decisions about the blows that you're throwing, then the resources you need to deliver a telling blow are going to be inherently present in ways that are in which they're not when you're trying to force something through. When you make a better decision, now you get to hit them at a place where they are less uh, able to defend themselves where again, as Tristan said, you, you know, you put, you use your footwork to put yourself in a better position. You have better angle, you have an easier mechanic that you can throw. Uh, you know, you have all of these, all these things that, that when you, when you make better decisions, all of those things are in place. And, and, and that adds to that perception um, because, you know, people get hit and they can't do anything about it. And they think that, that, oh my God, you're just, you're just so much faster than I am. I'm like, yeah, I'm a whole lot faster when, when I put you in a position where you can't do anything to defend the shot that I'm throwing. So better decision-making process. Yeah, I, I, I would just toss in, because what you're describing, if, like I said at the beginning of the episode, if you make, take the speedster and you make him take the long way to get to you and you maneuver to a point where it's a short path from your shoulder to his head, and it's a long path for his sword to your head. Now he can be physically faster with hand speed, but you've got the geometry on your side and you got there by the footwork. So that's how you make up for the speedster is maneuvering. All right, we are now coming up on, I think the target time for this episode. Um, just a reminder for everybody that is watching, if your questions have not been answered, by all means, um, go head over to the Coach's Corner, and we will put the link up uh, in the comment section and also as a post on this group so you are aware of how to get there easily. Everybody is wonderful. Definitely answer their polls because you are the determining factor as to what they are talking about. Does anybody have anything else? Bronis is making me really hungry eating. Me too. Oh. <laughs> hey, sorry, guys. Yeah, I just, I just want to take a moment to say uh, thank you, as always, to Vesper for moderating uh, uh, the, the... Thank you, Vesper. Thank you very much. Yeah, very, very much. Great, great job with ours, among others. Um, yeah. In fact, uh, coming up on, on Sunday, I'll go ahead and pimp this a little bit. Uh, she's got the uh, Ladies of Chivalry um, roundtable that, that they're doing, a six-part series. I think this is part four. Is that right? It is part four. Uh, that's some really great information, and uh, Vesper's been doing uh, just a lot of a lot of great work uh, in the last uh, three months since we've been, you know, locked up at home. 
<laughs> and I uh, just wanted to thank her again for all her work. Thank and you. And she got to her pelt practice. I got to my I was going to ask. Yes. I, was... <laughs> I, I went out the very next day and I practiced five very slow shots. And then I also did my regular repel routine as well. Good, yes. good. But I, and... I, was, I was telling a story earlier that apparently my pell in the backyard is offensive to some people. So I might have to hide it somewhere. I don't know. <laughs> it's strange. I don't know. Who knew a pell could be offensive? My uh, last words I want to send out to everybody who's listening. This is the hardest part of all of this. You have to practice it. If you like what you've seen and you want to honor these guys for taking the time out to sit up here and talk to you and tell you the stuff that they've taken literally decades of time to learn, then go practice it. Don't make us sit up here chatting away aimlessly. We'll do that anyway on our own. If you want to be better, you have got to do, and I think Tristan's probably said it the most, you've got to do the thing that's uncomfortable. You have to change what you're doing. It's the only way you're going to change, literally. Practice it. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate you listening. Thanks, everybody. Thank you to everybody for tuning in. Again, check out the uh, comment section on this group, and we will link you over to the Coach's Corner. By all means, head over there and join. Um, We will also be back here next Friday night. So I will see you, gentlemen, then. Have a wonderful evening. Have a great weekend. Take care, guys. Good to see you all.